0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
2: You know, when we talk about the fact that you you can hear um, the tonal qualities of the, tr- the trust trait, personality trait, um, isn't that amazing how advanced we are as human beings? We really are fine-tuned machines. And these machines that we all end up uh, playing and, and and somehow we all are a part of the same culture where we can pick up those traits together, tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. And to think that uh, – remember, it was, it was a, another trait that we've designed. We've kind of grown in order to be more social animals, right? I mean – we we've grown and and developed ourselves um, into this ability to read the tonal quality of somebody and know if we trust their modulation or not. And uh also we can see if we trust their dominance or not, and if we can trust their competency or not. So if that doesn't tell you that we are born to be connected social beings, I don't I don't know what would. We are uniquely um, developed and, and prepared to be with people. We have um, – uh, we've learned from rhesus monkeys and other uh, research that's been done that we have certain abilities to pick up on, um, on the ability to read people's uh, nonverbal uh, affect and, and emotional affect. We have the ability to actually have mirror neurons where – if I'm watching somebody in pain and my brain is uh, actually watching somebody that's, that's sad, like, for example, the shootings in Florida or any of the shootings uh, that we and you're watching and you're feeling very empathetic and very caring toward another, we could go into your brain and we would notice that you are in the brain center or the part of your brain that would actually relate to the human emotion and the feelings and that you are actually mirroring the feelings of other people. We've learned that from studies with monkeys and other, uh, and other primates, and, and even we all know that for some odd reason, we're fine until someone else starts crying, and once someone starts crying that we really love and we care about, for some reason, our emotion starts to kick in and we start to cry. What that tells you, again, is you're wired to connect, and we can try to pretend like we're not. We can try to outthink it. We can pretend like we don't care, but the reality is we care. And we've got to figure out a way, I believe, to start uh, not just hoping that we can somehow have a shortcut to trusting someone and creating trustworthiness, but maybe what we need to create really more than anything is more of an ability to actually grow trust with other people. So think about it in your life, in your relationships, what creates higher trust for you and the people around you? There is a, there's a great book out, and he's been on the show many times, uh, two or three times, actually, Stephen M. R. Covey, where we've talked about the speed of trust. And trust uh, to Stephen Covey and Stephen M. R. Covey was two things always. Character, which means you, you have the integrity and the character to do what you say you're going to do. You really just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. And we tend to trust people that have that. But you also have to have the competency. You have to know what on earth you're doing. It's not enough to trust somebody that's just really nice. They also have to bring competency. So think about that with the people around you in your life. Are you trustworthy to your kids? Do you know how to be their friend? Do you know how to connect to them? Some of us as parents, we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to relate to our children. Some of us, it's, it's a character issue. We don't have the integrity, the character to do it. Some of us, we don't necessarily have the competency to do it. We don't know how to relate. The benefit of all of this, though, is that we can learn this. These are skills. These are tools that we can truly learn and we, we can grow. And I'm going to suggest that if we had a choice for th- something we should probably try to improve in our relationships, if you want more trust in your relationship, I would suggest you forge more character. Use your relationship to forge more character. And I'm going to give you a few steps, a few ways to do that in today's Coaching Corner. Number one way to exercise your character in your relationship is to be more wholehearted. Put your entire heart into your relationship again. Now, I get it. It's scary. What if I put it in there and then my wife just gets on Facebook and ignores me? That's scary, right? Then you'll just be rejected. So what a lot of us do is because we we don't dare put our whole heart into re, in our relationship because we're so afraid of rejection. So we then have a half-hearted relationship. And if we have a half-hearted relationship, predict the outcome, that's half the benefit, half the intimacy, half the closeness, half the communication, half the connection, half half of the truth. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend, far, um, we spend enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. One of the things that may keep us half-hearted in our relationship is we're just too vulnerable. We don't want to be let down. And one of the rules I suggest, and I, I just did this in a date night, um, that's basically talking about how to grow a, a, a healthier relationship, higher love, I called it, um, is that we've got to learn to burn our ships. Like uh, Cortez, when he came to conquer, he, uh, when they pulled up, they, they, they left the ships, and they, they didn't just leave them so they could hurry and run back and, and use them as an exit strategy. Cortez asked that they burn the ship or make them inoperable. So they really took the ships apart. They either took them apart so they couldn't float or they burnt them. And uh, that made it so there was no quick exit strategy from this place. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't just hope to not be fully invested. They had to go win the war. And why that might be important in our relationships is if we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. One of them might simply be the fact that I can constantly blame my spouse for our problems, and i 'm always looking for for you know um, all, they call it shopping alternatives is what we call it in our relationships. Another thing we can do to to increase the character in our relationship is loosen your grip whenever I feel like i'm too vulnerable to risk anything new. I might try to control everyone around me, and as I try to control them, I might demand more perfection from people. I might try to get my safety and my security not from my ability to respond to certain situations, but instead I try to get it by making everyone else around me play up a certain role. I want everyone around me to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to not surprise me, to be highly predictable for me. And so I start controlling everyone. I might even demand perfection from everyone. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. When I demand perfectionism from everyone around me, shame is going to go up. Because what I'm going to do is make everybody feel bad for not making me feel safer. The fastest way to handle uh, life is not to make everyone else around you be more predictable for your sake, But instead, learn to loosen your own grip and handle your own insecurities and work on it. Another great way to work on it is to actually appreciate the gift you've been given. This is one of my favorite learnings I think I've had in the last, I don't know, two or three months is um, a concept given by C.S. Lewis that talks about we all have given gifts. We have things that we've been given that are beautiful gifts that are really awesome uh, for ourselves and our lives. And then we have what are called the expected gifts. The expected gifts are the things we've always expected to have happen to us. It might be that you've expected that you would get married and be married by now. But the given gift you've got instead isn't marriage. It just might be a really great friend network that uh, that is very supportive and strong. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Um, and uh, C.S. Lewis talks about an example of imagine that you are in a – forest and you go looking for food, when the minute you're looking for food, you immediately have an expectation of what kind of food you you want to find, right? And so you come across some, um, let's say you're looking for berries, but you come across the mushroom and you don't want the mushroom because you were looking for berries. That's what you expected to get. But if you come across the mushroom, the mushroom is still a gift. It's still food and it would still be very valuable for you. But it's not what you expected and so you don't quite like it. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. We might keep walking through the forest and come across other leaves that might be edible or we might come across, you know, other vegetables that are there, roots or whatever. And it's not what we wanted. We were still looking for red berries. I need red berries. And if we go through life and we're constantly overlooking the gifts that are given to us, the jobs that you do have, the kids that you have, the trials that you have, then um, you might actually be able to actually enjoy the things that are given. So one of the pieces of advice is start to identify your great blessings that you've already been handed and start appreciating them and do what you can with the given gift. Uh, start there, for example. Um, one of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis says, the truth is, of course, that one what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. What a lot of us are frustrated by in this world because it's interrupting our life is what life is about, right? The, a sickness, an illness, a problem, a child that's d- disruptive. Whatever it is, Uh, It's it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. So there are some basic principles, I think, for all of us. Appreciate the gifts that you actually have been given. Loosen your grip a little bit more and be wholehearted about your relationships in your life. If you do those things, you're going to forge more character. And when we are working with one another and forging character – It's amazing what we become. We all become a little more trustworthy, which is the goal, I think, of of our lives as well. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You and your spouse, do do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect, or do you end up Tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times. I wanted to uh, continue uh, a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I found, a lot of the clients I work with. They might, one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be, you know, a cyclist. And so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life, in your conversations, talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food – You know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building uh, a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, Um, things that are positive. Uh, Find out uh, – you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt. And you might go you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors. And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and and, you know getting your family ready to to send out to go to, to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We don't, we don't engage in other activities. Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, A lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food, sometimes exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough, whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, try some new things together, stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different, and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. We will continue learning together, folks. That's why we do the show, to help all of us become and be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about uh, flu and and the inf- and influenza. Um, you know, it's coming to an end, but it has been a pretty nasty season and um, a lot of deaths, uh, a high um, a high impact on a lot of uh, senior citizens, younger people as well, uh, infants. A lot of a lot of pain has been suffered because of the body your body and the flu today or the, uh, this year but what exactly is the flu how does it affect our body? And uh, so we we wanted to bring in Dr. Laura Haynes. She's a PhD from the University of Connecticut Health and uh, is a professor of immunology there. And is uh, today going to walk us through um, what happens with the flu, how it impacts our body, how uh, it causes what it's, what it's doing when it's causing all the pains and the problems. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Oh, glad to be here. Talk to us
2: about. Um, the flu, the influenza virus what what is going on? I mean, we always know that we 've got to get our flu shots. We know that the, the, it's that it 's a kind of a, a moving target. It seems like that we 're constantly having to to fight it a different way or find a different way to fight it. it, it talk to us, teach us about what is influenza and what 's going on in our bodies as we start to uh, to feel the impact of
3: it so the flu is a virus that enters your body via your, usually your respiratory system or other mucosal membranes. It could be your eyes or your mouth, whatever. And it gets into your um, upper airways in your lungs, and that's where it infects the cells. It will bind to receptors on specific cells in your airways, and it will then get into the cells and begin to replicate, because as, as any virus w- would want to do, it wants to make more of itself. And what our bodies will then do is try and stop that. Yeah. And so there's two kinds of uh, immune responses to a viral infection, such as flu. So the first that happens very quickly is the innate immune response. So this will happen to really any kind of infecting pathogen, so whether it be a flu or a virus, You'll have an immediate response, and it'll be production of uh, soluble mediators. So these are little little molecules that are really telling the rest of the immune system, hey, something's going on. We need to get up and get fighting because we've been invaded, basically. Mm. And uh, they respond to specific... Uh, molecules that are on the virus so the virus itself triggers the immune response these then these these little molecules that are sent out uh, start activating for lack of a better term the immune army so it's it's really defending against invasion in any sense of it and you so now we have uh, lots of cells lots of Soldiers being recruited into your lungs, mobilized, recruited into your lungs, and they're going to begin fighting the virus.
2: Oh, interesting. So, so is that is that when your lungs start to, you know, burn or ache or
3: well, f- you'll fill with more fluid. Yeah, so you'll get some fluid in there. Um, you'll start with not. It's not so much. Feeling things in the lung—it's—it's it's the the um, the soluble factors that are sort of sending out the alert are really what drives the mm, feeling like crap. Yeah, just lethargic they, yeah. and yeah. So it's it's these are called interleukins. They they, they signal other cells to come. So know your 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 immune cells are going to be living in your lymph nodes or your spleen hanging out waiting for an infection now they're, they're mobilized to come in um, by these soluble factors that are spewed out into your bloodstream and so now they're re- being recruited in and this number one they're going to uh, start to divide a lot so you're going to get swollen lymph nodes that's mm. your cells dividing and responding and then um, these soluble factors since they are going all over your body in your bloodstream they go to your brain they go to your muscles so um, the reason that you get lethargic is what's going on in your brain these factors affect uh, signal they they signal to to um, cells in your brain that you so that you will feel tired you will feel lethargic they signal in your muscles so your mm-hmm. muscles will start to ache.
2: Wow! And these are so that's interesting. So it's it's not the flu that makes me ache. It's my body's response to the flu that makes me ache, achy, and lethargic, exactly. and swollen lymph nodes. It's yes. my body responding.
3: Yes, yes. So it's it's the the army of your immune system mobilizing to fight the virus and and you know the, the ultimate goal is for the, for your adaptive immune response to come in to your lungs and specifically kill the virally infected cells.
2: Now, interesting. Does it does it overshoot? I mean, could it be that I'm getting way too big of a of a fix for a small dose of the virus?
3: That's a possibility. Yes. And you know, th- this this uh, is one of the problems with an immune response in a vital organ, such as the lung, um, during the resolution or the, of the infection, when the virus is pretty much getting cleared, you're having a really strong response going on in the lung because of your immune system, yeah. and that's causing a lot of pathology.
1: Okay. Okay
3: and that's going to be lung damage. That's, that's when it gets really hard to breathe, you're coughing.
2: And if I already have lung issues, if yeah. I already have uh, breathing issues, then this is where it could become fatal. Exactly, yeah.
3: yes. The other problem with this is this really now sets up a stage for a secondary infection. So you can get a secondary bacterial infection, A lot of people who die from flu actually don't really die from flu. They'll die from secondary bacterial pneumonia, Mm -hmm. and that's you know you just you begin to get a little better. You think like you're better for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden you get the bacterial pneumonia. And if you're not in the hospital, it's not going to be good.
2: Oh, wow. Interesting. So isn't it, it it really is our body doing everything it can to help us, but simultaneously it's causing pain. And if we don't watch it and pay attention and we already have other conditions, it could, it could actually exacerbate the whole situation.
3: Exactly. So, you know, older folks who have uh, chronic lung disease, people who, or younger folks who have chronic lung disease also, uh, people who smoke or people who, uh, have jobs where they ha- are exposed to uh, lung irritants. These oral people are really uh, much more susceptible to a bad outcome during flu.
2: Then we talk about the the flu shot, that we ought to get the mm-hmm. flu shot. And so what is, when we get the flu shot, what exactly is happening and, and how is it beneficial if there are so many variations of the flu?
3: Yes. Yeah, so it, it is beneficial. It's obviously not hundred percent preventive but so what the flu vaccine does is uh it it's it's just purified proteins from the virus so there's no actual virus in a flu vaccine except for the flu mist which is the which you get up your nose which mm-hmm. they haven't been recommending it hasn't been working well lately, but um, all the flu shots that you get intramuscularly in your arm—they're all—they contain no flu virus. So, um, and the goal of those is to induce an antibody response. And now the antibodies are going to be made by a responding a B lymphocytes, and the antibodies will circulate. And once you have the virus in your lungs or once it it gets introduced to your body, what the antibodies do, they're just little um, molecules that can bind to the virus. They're specific for a specific type of the flu virus. And that's decided about now is where they're deciding what flu viruses need to be in the vaccine for next year. Mm. Um, So they'll bind to the virus and they're the, the, the ultimate goal there is to prevent the virus from binding to the cells in your lungs. Now, maybe it doesn't work totally, but if it works a little bit, the level of virus that actually gets in your lungs is reduced. But also, if you do get an infection and new virus is produced in your lungs from your lung cells, the antibody will mop it up quickie, quicker, yeah, yeah, quicker. Yeah. So you, it's just sort of dampening down level of infection so you don't get as sick. Uh, the other thing that we don't understand, but it's really been coming out in studies lately, is that the flu vaccine is highly correlated with reductions in heart attacks and strokes, especially in older folks. So flu makes older people People much more susceptible to heart attacks and strokes for huh. reasons that we don't understand, yeah. and the flu vaccine really protects against that.
2: Wow! And then, so is it compounding? So if I get a flu shot every year, does it that that means I'll get different proteins uh, f- and uh, influenza proteins year after year after year? Mm-hmm. Does it make over time? Does it build a stronger bridge for me,
3: um, or a
2: stronger wall against this? It-
3: it could um we're not really sure the 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 main issue with the way that the flu vaccine is made now is that it it's not obviously it's not it doesn't induce a long lived mm. response so you know it it induces a, a response that is protective over a period of months but it doesn't seem to last, that, that, that it's a very transient protection. And we don't understand why. You know, this is part of, of the immune system that, that is not totally understood yet. You know, what makes a long-lived response versus what makes a short-lived response. And, in, you know, some vaccines, you know, like, like a, a measles vaccine induces a lifelong immune response. Hmm. But flu doesn't. Flu, and, and it's, it's also the nature of the vaccine because it's... Um, it's not as strong. Whereas a, a measles vaccine is a, is a attenuated live virus. A flu vaccine is protein, and it induces a different kind of immune response. Yeah. So, yeah. So.
2: Does um, do, do you sense, like, overall, that the the flu viruses that we're seeing today are they more aggressive than we would have seen 30 years ago? Are these viruses getting stronger, tougher, more? Tricky than they maybe were years ago, or is it the same virus? I mean, is is it just another iteration?
3: It's mostly another iteration. And you know, once in a while, we'll have a strong uh, pandemic virus like we had in 2009, 2010, or like what we had in 1918. But uh, honestly, like this year, the H3N2 was circulating more than the H1N1, which was what the pandemic was in 2010. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a, not a new virus. This is something that goes around every few years. Mm-hmm. So un- unless there's a perturbation of a new, with a new virus or a new combination of virus, then um, we're, we see uh, similar things. And so if people you know, get sick and survive one pandemic, when that virus comes around again, they'll be protected.
2: What would you say to um, people that say, well, man, Laura, you know, it sounds like a lot of people are getting the flu shot, so I probably don't need it.
3: Uh, Because I think what what I just said is that, you know, it doesn't protect totally. So even if you, those people who don't, who do get, who, who get it and still get sick, can still transmit it to you. Yeah. And my, my big issue with people who don't get the flu shot is that if they get sick, you know, they, they may be young and healthy, but, you know, they're going to go...
2: But grandma may v- not be. Visit
3: grandma. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, visit uh, elderly people. And they, the younger people are much more protected when they get the flu vaccine than older people are, and which is not good because older people are way more susceptible to getting really sick. Mm-hmm. So um, honestly, when you're getting the flu shot, you're probably getting it not for yourself so much, but to keep from transmitting it to other people. Hmm. That's a great way to look at it.
2: Yeah. What would you, um, I mean, I guess in the end, because then we also hear, uh, I mean, this is something that if if I have a lung issue, if I have asthma or severe asthma or other issues that or and what are some of those issues that would make me more susceptible that I really need to make sure I'm paying attention when they're talking about the flu?
3: So, yes. So anyone who has asthma, respiratory allergies, um, COPD, emphysema, um, or even if you know you're just really prone to getting a lot of viral infections, uh, you know, young adults of that nature, Um, also young kids. Mm. So young kids, you know, most most people, once they get to be an adult, have some flu immunity. They're not, they've been exposed to flu, so they're a bit protected. But young kids are not. They're very, um, their immune systems are quite naive, and and so they can get really sick. And I think this past season we've seen a lot of kids die from flu. Uh.
2: That's so yeah. tragic. Well, Laura, we appreciate your insight uh, and your great your great just willingness to help uh, help us understand that uh, when you are feeling all the pains, all the aches, all the trouble, the congestion in your chest, uh, it's really your body getting to work. It's a sign of good, not necessarily a sign just of the bad. Your body is engaged. Um, Laura Haynes, again, PhD, professor of immunology at the University of Connecticut Health um, and... Uh, Great, uh, great insights. Thank you very much. We will continue the journey, continue learning, doing what we can to make not just the, the world uh, a better place from, you know, influenza. But uh, up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can improve our relationships along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, one of the things I studied in my doctoral program is uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory, more than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory, which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You don't, you don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation, I mean, as you would know them today, but that that symbol, that, I, that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over time end up being created. Which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol. But if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, why I bring this up is that I, we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at – is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there are certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times, they, they may be told, but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, resiliency is that ability to... To bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state and so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard life there are some struggles. But it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key, it's the response to the trial. Um, it might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they, you know are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, but it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories, that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are everybody you may have had that moment when you know you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that you know what i I'm better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably you can you could be a doctor or you could you could get into this school that you want to get into. And you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a, you know, a mathematician or a scientist. That's the who am I story. And I think kids, especially like my college kids, need to know how I came to know who I was. So I try to share that story. Another story you could share is the what matters most story, like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values and you just share the story. I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course my entire life. uh, I was always taught you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday And I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down basically a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I need to – I need to – not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. (laughs) Anyway, they looked at me like, "Okay," but that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. You know, the life of a police officer sounds difficult, doesn't it? Dealing with theft and accidents, seeing the most... Traumatic events of people 's lives, murders on top of all of that, you know you think the last thing on their mind would be a, anything about their untucked shirt, but experts are looking into the daily life of a police police officers, and it seems like some administration officials are so concerned with trivial rules that an untucked shirt or a missing hat may be the biggest worry in a cop 's mind even after saving someone 's life. Is administration of police force corrupting or burdening the justice system? Well, a few months back, I spoke with John Shane, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, to help us understand the kind of stresses police deal with in their everyday lives. Uh, It was based on an article from Marketplace.org and entitled The Cost of Stress in the Police Force. I started the interview by asking, is police work really a thankless job?
1: Well,
4: yeah, you do have a point there. I I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll stop short of saying it's it's thankless. There are there are certainly a lot of thankless moments. Yeah. That the pub that the public certainly doesn't understand, but there are there's a lot of, you know, good that uh, you know, the police contribute to society in you terms bet. of you know, recreational opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, you cannot have a viable community with employment, recreation, good schools, Without having a very strong uh, police force, and you know yes uh, no nobody likes when the lights are, are turned on behind them while they're traveling down the road uh, above the speed limit you know but there there are good reasons for that and and you know discretion certainly plays a lot into how police officers interact with members of the community, but yes, you are right uh, the stresses of the day to day operations of policing uh, I think the research bears uh, bears us out are are much more detrimental than the operational aspects
2: of police. Oh, yeah. In fact, th- this article that we were citing, the cost of stress in the police force, I guess there's a there's an organization called Cop to Cop, which is a 24 hour hotline that fields up to eight hundred and fifty calls every month for stressed out police officers. And sh- the 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 leader of that, Sherry Casta said um, that she she's found that It's one thing's the trauma, right, of just having being a cop and exposure to murder, car accidents and hurt kids. But she said what may be even a bigger issue is simply what happens after the car chase is over. The, you know, the leave, the administrative leave and having to deal with administration. Do you see that, John, in your research with police officers, that there's a lot of tension just between the the administration of the police officers and the cops?
4: The answer is 100% yes. Mm. Uh, I know Cherie very well. When she started Cop to Cop, I was working in the Newark Police Department, and my division and myself and a couple others were instrumental in getting that operation up and running.
1: Oh,
2: great.
4: Between the Newark Police Department and you know, University Hospital at the time. So we're going back now probably to about uh, 1996, 97, wow. somewhere around there, so it's up around 20 years. But the research that I've done... And uh, the interviews that I've done with police officers have certainly bear witness to the fact that it is the administrative side of policing that is much more detrimental to their emotional well-being and their stress level than it is the operation. Mm. And, and a lot of this stuff centers on things like constantly being second-guessed in the work that they do, constantly having their decisions overridden, constantly being subjected to an enormous policy and procedures manual that, Uh, covers literally everything you could think of, from the way you have to wear your uniform and your shoes and your hat to how you are to conduct yourself during a police pursuit and the reports that you are, you know, required to file, the level of bureaucracy. And most people have no real good conception of how policing is structured. You know, the, the, the image that everybody has is that of, you know, the cop's television show... Or these glamorized yeah. uh, Hollywood-style NYPD sorts of things. Yeah, but the, the reality of police work is that most police departments around the country are about 15 police officers. Some are very, very, uh, very small. But nothing like the NYPD. And there is a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and oversight that wears on you on a day-to-day basis, and until it eventually wears you down into something like suicide or alcohol. Or other performance problems.
2: Oh, and then the the political side of it. And I mean, I, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and you go to this, you'd go to the scene, and it's dangerous. And we'd even sit outside and wait for the cops to go in for the dangerous thing, and then clear the scene, and then we would go in and take care of people. But what was so amazing to me is after all the intensity and getting everything done and you finally you risk life and limb and you get to the hospital, you get the patient taken care of, then you still have a half hour to forty minutes of paperwork. And and then to have your leader come in and say, Now what was this and start questioning your paperwork, you're like, Holy cow. I mean that
4: it's stressful. And not, and and the and the the idea of liability looms large behind that. Yeah. And the fact that your hospital is going to be sued, you're going to be sued personally. You're going to be held accountable for a decision that you made to save someone's life within two seconds, and someone's going to take six months behind the scenes to critique your ideas with the with the best law books and everything else. Say, well, no, what you did was wrong, uh, and we're going to prove it to you. And here's how it works. Mm. Very difficult proposition to be in on a day-to-day basis for 20, 25 years of your of your career.
2: Oh, and, and and you you saw it in those funerals of those officers that were shot in New York when there was the you know the people that the officers that turned their back to Mayor De Blasio and that whole kind of situation. But there's incredible tension, and these people are giving their lives, and the majority are just good folk, right? They're just good people but they don't feel like they have their leaders, their administration backing them.
4: Yeah, there's been a lot of very, very good research uh, from the 1970s into the 1980s about the differences between what are known as management cops and operational police officers. And those at the line level many, many times feel as though the people in management don't support them, don't understand what it is they're facing, have forgotten where they've come from, and suddenly they have this management persona that is antithetical to everything that's going on in the field.
1: Mm, yeah.
4: Now, I, look, I respect the fact that the community has to have the right to complain. They have to have an avenue for redress. And, you know, everybody has to, you know, be heard because there are times when police officers don't act the right way. We, I think we all know that. Right, right. But to have routine, mundane, everyday decisions question, because that is essentially what we pay police officers to do. We pay the police to make decisions on our behalf uh, in our best interest to keep us safe um, from all sorts of things. And at every single turn, there always seems to be someone who says, well, you know, the police could have done this, that, and the other thing. And because they didn't, we're going to hold them accountable. We're going to prefer the departmental charges against them. And, you know, next thing you know, somebody's being suspended for a decision they made. That's perfectly within their right, but because someone feels that they should they they should have done something else, yeah, that they're now subject to departmental criticism.
2: An, an example you give is just simply the uniform, right? So you you they could be just simply nitpicked in their meeting, their pre whatever meeting, just for their wrong sock colors or whatever, and um, all of a sudden we're not only being nitpicked for what I do on the street, but I'm also now have to be, I guess, perfect at literally everything because one complaint will come down on me.
4: Yeah, and it's those very sorts of things that weigh on you day in and day out. You see, if you face a man with a gun, if you face a car chase or a fight in the street or a domestic call or a car stop that is uh, a little bit hazardous, they are brief, momentary points in time. They come and they go. Yeah. And you can recover from them. You know, you you sit back in your car after the episode, and you think about what happened. You have time to calm down. But the rule book in a police department, the rules, the regulations, the policies, the overbearing autocratic supervisor who got his or her job through nepotism and is certainly not qualified to sit there, has authority over you. And that authority never goes away. You either leave the the police organization, or you learn to cope with those things. And unfortunately, there's no real coping mechanism when you've got an overbearing autocratic boss who can turn to a 700-page book and find something that you've done wrong at every single turn. Mm. That never leaves you. Where the car chase will leave you, and the domestic violence episode will leave you after a brief moment, The rule book and management never leave you. You either leave police work or you learn to live with it.
1: Well and that's learning
4: to live with it. That that, that... often means turning to drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, you know, other maladaptive behaviors.
2: Well, and maladaptive behaviors that then may be acted out in your job again. Well, of course they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but what's, like
4: use of force and courtesy and all sorts of other. Things.
2: I mean, you're talking about a 700 page rule book that's just the rule book of being the cop. That's not even just the laws they need to uphold, right? That's just the cop rule book.
4: Right. That is the rule book of the organization, are they, and if you, it, it's very simply stated. If you were to go online. Uh, onto the internet and and Google something like uh, policy manual or department procedures or uh, some, something like rules and regulations, you can find organizational examples from across the country,
1: mm.
4: and every one of them is two, three, four, five, six hundred pages. There's some on there that are nine hundred pages long. <laughs> Nobody could possibly uh, be expected to memorize that, and yet. Someone somewhere knows what's embedded on page 543, and they're going to pull it out and use it against you.
2: Yeah, and they may not even use it against you in the moment. They just may use it against you the minute there's a complaint. It's, 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 well, a, it, it's tense.
4: Yeah, that, see, that that's part of the problem because the human experience cannot be mathematized, right? It, right. It, it's it, not by rote. It's
2: it's so really
1: situational. Sort of yeah.
4: Lot, a, yes, it's situational. It's discretionary. And someone always has a counterexample of what you should have done uh, in that moment. And that person, unfortunately, is someone sitting behind a desk somewhere who has all the time and decision-making power in the world. But you had to do this in three and a half minutes on the scene of an incident.
2: That was Dr. John Shane. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
2: Many times your spouse, yeah, they may seem a little critical. But they also may just be trying to give you uh, uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism, maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to, but um, uh, it may not, it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in, a, in any other way other than it sounding critical, or it might be honestly that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback especially accurate feedback i know many times uh, i i just wish people would just not give me feedback except deep down i also know you need the feedback right so um remember uh, i'm going to give you just some rules that i've learned as i uh, work with people as i get feedback myself as i'm in my own relationships Uh, Generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So, um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things. Others might nitpick other things. And if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are. What, what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate, so it, it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're, if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know there's probably a history here of, of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources. Right. So, a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is, but that may also be the exact same person that never ever 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 ever, ever cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help. Clean the house. Is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily. If that makes sense, sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, "You know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth." And I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess. But they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated. But it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. What it might be telling you is, boy, when they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, uh, they'll say anything. Um, Is your partner sometimes – You might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do. Right. So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that, because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. Check your sources. Uh there, there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, it also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession. They may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do too, when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that that is there and and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. <laughs> it's just somebody that's that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The And, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective, critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone. Or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to, to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying, accept it, actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's, I, a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm, when I have downtime and and I'm sorry, it makes you upset and I'll work on making it better. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn though as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others. Don't turn over your self esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something and a lot of this I think comes from just our childhood if you know if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child and we felt you know put down and deeply unloved and uncared for. Sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually re-look at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to, to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly, and um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it, and I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness. I'm already mad and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already so thanks for the feedback. Um but it but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually I think we're supposed to feel guilt and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you to uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person. I'm so sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing, but I'm not. <laughs> when you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks. And uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just, it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to, to feedback. And I don't want to empower too many people to uh, you know, to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you.
0: It's not always fun, is it? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
2: To the importance of um, learning a second language. It is interesting. I, I have friends that both speak Spanish or uh, other languages, and they-, they make it a habit in their family to, to use those languages more. And it, they, they actually do it as a way to to bring themselves t- together because they both speak Spanish. So why not speak more Spanish and then keep your language alive? It's something that you can do together. It actually uh, seems to energize their relationships a little bit. And I realized that whatever it is, um, you can make anything a hobby or, uh, you know, a learning opportunity. My father-in-law learned Spanish just on the side. He was a doctor, cardiologist. And for fun, he wanted to learn Spanish. So he would have uh, anybody that spoke Spanish in his uh, when he was doing his procedures, he would make them speak Spanish to him. And every day on the drive in, he'd listen to Spanish um, recordings and try to learn how to do it. And now he's fluent in Spanish. Like, come on he made did it as a hobby there really are a lot of things that we could probably try to do with our significant other our loved ones where we we actually can find more ways to connect find more ways to be together on a hobby find more ways to be together whether it's language or whether it's just you know getting out and uh, enjoying tennis or riding bikes or whatever you like to do together But um, one of the things I I hear a lot from my clients are, you know, they fall out of love. It's just not easy to keep the fire alive and the flame burning. And um, I'm like, yeah, well, sure. Passion, you know, you want passion in your marriage, but passion takes energy and you've got to somehow engage energy in your marriage. If you want more passion and connection, you're going to have to exert more energy. Oh, yes. I don't have time for that. I kind of just want to take a pill that I just uh, gives us passion. But uh, many marriages are, are really starving because we don't exert the energy we need, just like we don't exert the energy that it takes to to make um, something like learning a language takes energy. I, I learned a language and I'm still not focusing on it or, or giving it any energy. And when you don't give something energy, it fades. You start to lose it. And so I would just challenge all of us if you want to make things important to you, you're going to have to give it some energy. We always talk about just giving it time, and time is great, but it also is going to take energy. You're going to have to decide how you know how bad you want something and is it worth the energy you have to, to take. I, in fact, uh, my kids were saying the other day, hey, dad, let's buy a boat. We want a boat. Let's get a boat. And in my head, the whole decision... Is about energy <laughs> because my kids have never, they don't know what it feels like to ski all day and then come off the boat uh, and be done and bring the boat in and then have to spend the next few hours cleaning the boat, you know, and drying the boat and washing the boat and taking care of the boat. They don't know what that's like. But in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, it's really not even about skiing, you guys. But then others would say, yeah, but that's how you teach your kids to work, right? You teach them to work that. Yeah, but that's just more energy. So um, think about it. What takes your energy and what gives you energy back? And that's probably um, something that we all ought to be looking at. If you want more excitement in life, if you want more connection in marriage and relationships, if you want more – you know learning and growing you're going to have to figure out how to ex- you know energize uh yourself enough to go do something about it also maybe you're going to have to cut down on other things that you're doing at some point you're going to have to say i'm not i can't do that i don't have the bandwidth to keep doing all of these other things but um it also there is benefit in um finding activities where you could like work together as a family and use and conserve all that energy to, for example, be with your family. We play tennis as a family and that makes it so every time we go do our hobby, we're doing it as a family. And that all of a sudden gives us not only time together but something that we can share together, something that we enjoy together – and uh, something that brings us a lot of peace. So life is good, and whatever it is you choose to, you know, you know, excel at, or make a hobby, or bring into your life, let's do it. That's great. And manage your energy as you do it, and see if you can involve more people into the process. Then all of a sudden, your hobbies become something that are additive to your family life instead of something that divides you away from your family. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Game theory is the mathematical analysis of conflict resolution. So game theory obviously has its place in decision-making between international businessmen, heads of state. But does it also have the same impact with your five-year-old child? Dr. Kevin Zolman is an associate professor of philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of the book The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting and explained with uh, to us not long ago um, that it actually does. There's a lot of power in these theories, and they can impact our kids very positively. He said, I began, oh no, I began the interview um, with Dr. Zolman by asking if he could explain what game theory is and why it is being used in parenting.
0: Game theory, we call it the science of strategic thinking. It's a, a theory that's been used to think about negotiation, but also other types of that was invented in the 1940s and used a lot in economics and political science and psychology and, and related fields. Um, But as you said, for the most part, it was applied to sort of big scale decisions like international negotiation or 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 business decisions. And one of the things that my co-author and I sort of figured out as we were starting to work on the book is that a lot of these big scale strategies are strategies that you can employ in the home with your kids. And even though it's maybe not as uh, monumental a decision as the decision whether to sign a treaty, nonetheless, you can get a lot you can get a lot of the same benefits out of using game theory to try and reduce conflict in your home, just like you can reduce it in international relations.
2: Yeah, right. And it's, it, I mean, I guess when I when I think of it, um, I've never necessarily, well, I guess I have sensed it as a mathematical equation, but it's it's almost the the game gets complicated because you can start to actually actually measure outcomes of how the game is played, and if you alter one part of the game, then you can start to see uh, how it would alter the the outcome as well, right?
0: Exactly, and that's one of the things that game theory has really shown is that. Sometimes surprising little changes in the way that you structure how two people interact can radically alter the way the outcome proceeds. And so one of the things we do in the book, we try and take the mathematics away because, of course, not everybody wants to read a bunch of equations.
2: Boring, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. But what we try and do is distill the lessons that the mathematics teaches us presented in a way that's, that's understandable and clear and easy for people to, to put to use in their own homes. And exactly that, you can make these small changes that maybe you wouldn't have even thought were a big deal, but that might make a big difference in how the outcomes with your negotiations with your kids or between your kids
2: uh, turn out. Okay, let me give a naive ex- example and then start teaching us. Okay, so okay, sure. if we're going to do an arm wrestle, and I'm going to fight against you and compete against you, um, I guess, I I mean, I would probably win fewer times if we are competing. But if I would learn to cooperate, and even let you win sometimes, so you would let me win sometimes, and we create a spirit of cooperation, we together could win more together than we could competing.
0: Exactly. That That's a great example because it's one of the things that game theory teaches you is that it's, it's uh, oftentimes if you can find ways to make mutually beneficial or win-win outcomes, that's good for everybody. Now, that's easy to say in theory, but right. sometimes hard in practice. So one of the things, like with your example, say you and I have to arm wrestle over and over, but we want to sort of do this with minimal effort, right? So right. I, I don't care so much about winning. I just don't want to get tired, and the same for you. We could fight each time and try as hard as we could, or we could make an agreement where with the agreement, we might take turns. I'll let you win one, then you let me win one. And if we do that, then we can both end up the same. Each of us win equal numbers, but with minimal effort. Hmm. The critical thing is how do you, how do you enforce that? Right. So if, you know, if, if, it's, if, if we're just going to arm wrestle once, and I say, oh, I'll let you win. Well, it doesn't seem like something that I might follow through on. Maybe I'll try and trick you. And then try and win myself. And so the, one of the things that game theory uh, has shown is that repeating the interaction is really important. So it's really important in your story that we arm wrestle several times in a row. Yeah. That way we can make an agreement. I'll let you win this time, but you've got to let me win the next time. And then if you do that, then I'll let you win the third time. Mm. So we can make an agreement that becomes, uh, becomes one that we'll keep to precisely because the threat of the future i could always retaliate on you in the future and that keeps you sort of in line
2: yeah. uh today and which is why this is a brilliant seemingly brilliant technique to to use with the, your children because they're going to be in you know reciprocal interactive relationships over time exactly exactly and
0: so one of the things we have a chapter about this in the book we talk about how it is that you can design interactions that maybe are going badly with your kids in order to try and make them repeated in a more, you know, condensed way. So, for instance, you know, if your kids have to cooperate to pick up the room, maybe one of them shirks on, on you know, his responsibilities and sits out and lets his sister do all the cleaning right. and she gets mad. Well, what you can do is you can say, instead of just saying, clean up the room, you can say, okay, the little, you know, your son is going to pick up one toy. Then your daughter will pick up one toy. Then your son will
2: pick up one toy,
0: right? And by doing it that way, the kids can see, well, if I don't pick up the toy,
2: then my sister isn't going to pick up her toy. And Interesting. And we're not getting out of here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because so many times as parents, we would just divide the divide and conquer. Great. You do this side, you do this side, but the other person may not ever do their side.
0: Exactly. But if you do it this way and then you, say, promise a reward or, or threaten a punishment if, if, if the room doesn't get clean or if it does get clean, then the kids can see, ah, our best strategy is to cooperate with one another in order to get the ice cream reward
1: for Holy having to clean. Cow.
2: Now, is this um, something that happens in nature naturally? I mean, do, do two monkeys do it this way? <laughs> Yes,
0: actually, my favorite example of this is 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 a bit creepy, but I kind of like it nonetheless. Is with vampire bats. Oh yeah. So they, these are real things, uh, and if your listeners didn't know that, they might not sleep tonight. But they really <laughs> do exist. They they live in caves during the day and fly out and look for mammals whose blood they can eat uh, uh, at night. Ugh. And when they come back to the cave, you know it's hard to find the uh, hard to find the big enough mammals. So sometimes they don't eat. And so if one didn't eat during the night, he'll walk up to a friend and he'll ask for some food from the friend. And apparently it looks as though they they implement exactly this strategy. They remember each other, and if they see that, that somebody who had helped them out comes begging for food, they'll help them out.
2: Wow. Nature. Me sure, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing, and yet we all fight with each other. Exactly, um, not crazy. <laughs> so, give us a teach us another one. So, so learning how to cooperate. Uh, so, let me get straight. In the book, you teach the principles, and then you give examples for how how to get that principle to be applied. Exactly. So,
0: each chapter of the book looks at a different parenting dilemma, you know, where your kids are fighting or they can't decide how to how to uh, split things fairly, or you they never listen to you when you threaten to punish them or something like this. And then we walk people through the sort of lessons of game theory as they apply to that specific case, and then at the end conclude with, you know, how can you put this to use to solve similar problems that a parent might have? Yeah.
2: Honestly that is it's it's brilliant um, because too we are we are converting them into a cooperative mentality right we're we're fostering a cooperative mentality That's exactly
0: right and you know game theory was accused of and I think you know somewhat fairly in the early days of being really about conflict it was invented to deal with the cold war and so there was lots of analysis of what were called zero sum games games where if I win, then you have to lose and vice versa. Right. But modern game theory is much, is much nicer and friendlier than that. And really, we started to turn to understand games where there are cooperative, what are called cooperative solutions, win-win solutions. And one of the things that we emphasize in the book is that by showing your kids the various strategies that they can learn to cooperate with one another, not only are you reducing the conflict in your household, But you're also teaching them lessons that they can take with them well into their adulthood because of the same strategies that work between brother and sister are going to work between husband and wife or between uh, uh, two employees that can't get along or in any number of different
2: contexts uh, in adulthood. Oh, man, that's good. Uh, Give us us another example. What's another example of fostering cooperation with our kids, getting them to – to even maybe just even cooperate with the schedule.
0: Yeah, with the schedule. So that's another one that's really that's really tricky, right? Kids don't want to go to bed. Right. They want to do something else or they want to keep watching TV. And so how can you get them not just to cooperate with each other, but to cooperate with you, the parent. <laughs> yeah. Um one of the things that we look into is different strategies that parents can use to either punish or reward their kids for engaging in behavior that the parents want them to do. The classic example that we talk about, the one everybody knows, is the dad who threatens to turn the car around if the kids don't behave in the (laughs) backseat. We all know the story, and we all know why the story doesn't work because dad wants to go on vacation too, and so he doesn't want to follow through on that threat. Game theorists have a term for this it's called a non credible threat. And the idea here is, of course, the kids are smart enough usually to figure out that dad's not serious. He doesn't want to cancel the 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 uh, the family vacation so what one of the things we talk about is we talk about how parents can design threats or 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 rewards punishments or rewards that they uh, that they want to follow through on so one of the suggestions we give is instead of threatening to end the vacation what dad could have done uh, is say well we're still going on vacation but instead of going to the amusement park on Saturday we're going to go to the museum
1: Oh, there you go.
0: Right? So that's something the kids are going to go, well, Dad likes museums, so he's going to want to do that. And so now we should behave because Dad will actually follow through on his threat. That's <laughs> just one example, but we give several yeah. different ways that you can make your threats or Threats of punishment here are credible.
2: I mean, sure, it's ruining museums for children, but right. <laughs> <laughs> you still—it was credible. It's a credible yeah, it threat, credible.
0: And, and that's not the only. No, thing. that's well, I mean, great. We, we, we also talk about other things where you know you could, if say one of your children is misbehaving, you could threaten to replace their favorite activity with one of their brother or sister's favorite activities. Right, so there that's you the go. case where, where again. Um, brother or sister say, ooh, you know, this is exciting. Maybe I can get to do more things that I want to do. And the one who's misbehaving says, ooh, I better be careful because, of course, dad's going to do that. Um,
2: mm. uh, I love this. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Zolman uh, from Co- Carnegie Mellon University, and he's the author of the, um, the book The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. It really is allowing uh, people to interact in a way – that I guess is more productive. It's, it's, it's more real for the players. You're allowing them to, to see kind of a cause and effect relationship to what they want.
0: Exactly. And, and one of the things I find, at least, and maybe I'm just abnormal in this respect, is that I sometimes don't even realize to myself how much I care about something until I really think through, you know, well, what would I be willing to do to get it? And so I think one of the things that's useful about the auctions is it's not just that it gets chores done, although that's, of course, a benefit, yeah. but it's that it really helps your kids to start the process of thinking through, well, I want to name the family dog, but do I really, how much do I want it? And do I want it more than my sister? Hmm. That's the critical thing is that, you know, kids think, well, I want to do it. And so therefore I ought to do it. But they, don't, they haven't yet gotten to the point where they start thinking about, well, how much does she want to do it? And how does that compare to how much I want to
2: do it? Yeah. Is um, Where does the fairness idea come in? A lot of times I hear kids complaining that something's not fair. Yeah. And so how, how do you handle fairness?
0: This is a really interesting topic. And is one. This, my co-author was the uh, person who really investigated this. And one of the things that surprised both of us when we found it out – is that there really are actually two different ideas of fairness, and kids learn them at different stages. So the first one is the, is the sort of jealous notion of fairness. That's the, it's unfair because he got more than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that arises at a very young age. I mean, kids develop it really early on. And any parent, I think, knows, you know, the kids will be in tears as soon as their uh, friend gets more candy at the birthday party or something. The other notion of fairness, the one that, that is sort of you might think of as the more mature, more sophisticated notion of fairness, is that it's unfair when I get more than him. Hmm. And that notion of fairness doesn't really set in until kids are more like seven or eight years old. So that the idea that kids might develop a, a, a dislike for getting too much more for themselves than somebody else gets doesn't set in until much later. So one of the things we talk about is how you can help to teach your kids that it, unfairness goes both ways and how you can set up situations to encourage younger kids to be fair with their brother and sister, even though they might not have yet developed this notion of fairness that, uh, that uh, comes at a later age.
2: Do you – so do you – is there a game? Is there a – I'm just trying to think of how that would look um, to create – The fairness both ways. I mean, it's a it's an interesting idea. I have never thought of it when I get more. That's that's kind of a different level of maturity. But, you know, in our world, we kind of say, well, if you're getting more, just keep getting it.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the jokes that that my co-author and I shared is, you know, there's certainly a good number of people in the public eye that we can think of who maybe haven't got to that eight-year-old age yet.
2: (laughs) No, some of them are running for president. Um, But it's a, uh, one of the things, when I was a divorce mediator, we would always say, great, make the deal, and then let's just be willing to reverse it. Uh So if if we can reverse the deal and it can go either way, then it seems fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. that's So game theorists have a name for it, and it's called envy-free. So what that means is if both parties are indifferent between which side of the deal they get, then it's envy-free. I don't envy what you got because I am I don't desire what you have any more than what I have. Hmm. And so game theorists are really interested in how do you design negotiations so that you produce these kinds of envy-free outcomes.
2: Is it... In the end, your goal with the book and games theory, summarize it.
0: So what we wanted to do was we wanted to use this sort of sometimes esoteric and very complicated theory and distill the lessons so that people who don't have the time or desire to really dig into it can take advantage of it. And so we wanted to take these ideas that had been sort of floating around in academic circles for a long time and known you know taught in business school and taught in political science and give it so that the parents can really get the idea quickly put it to use in their home without necessarily having to learn all the bells and whistles and details that the sometimes very complicated theory uh, would require if you were to say take a college class in it
2: yeah you don't need a phd for this one Exactly. Unless you want to know it.
0: <laughs> Unless you want to know it. Of, right. course, I, of course, you know, I love it. So, I, <laughs> so it was worth it, the
2: PhD. But... <laughs> As we wrap it up, Kevin, what would you say, what's the one thing that parents should remember to, to that's just a basic rule that might, you know, very easily get them into kind of the games theory mentality?
0: Absolutely. One of the critical things with game theory is you've got to think about, You've got to think about the interaction from the perspective of the other person. So it's very easy for a parent to say, well, of course, I wouldn't, you know, uh, skip my homework every day because I know grades are important. But your young teenage daughter might not think about it that way because hmm. she has different priorities and she's thinking about things in a, in a different way. She's thinking about the future differently than you do. And so what's always very important is to think about not what would you do in that situation, but given your how your kids think about the world, what will they do? I think that's one of the real central insights that game theory can, can present.
2: Great stuff. Dr. Kevin Zolman, thank you so much for your work and for uh, the book, The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. Thanks for being with us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, again, how the science of strategic thinking can help you deal with the toughest negotiators you know, your kids. The book's written by uh, Paul Rayburn and Dr. Kevin Zolman. Excellent stuff, folks. Hey, take we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, I've been uh, talking recently, uh, last hour or two included, about – Um, The lessons we could teach our kids and really by just having different discussions and maybe better discussions about life. We always talk on the show about resiliency and and creating a, a more resilient family. Part of resiliency is helping our kids understand that life is hard and you can get through it. And, and really, when it comes down to it, too, that you're already uh, able to handle a lot more than you think you are. And I think one of the things that really could help us convey this message to our children and our family are the stories we tell. So some of the stories I think we should make sure we're telling are the Who Am I story, which is where you share with your kids very clearly how you came to know who you are in this world. If you're a spiritual person, that could be your story about your conversion, uh, about why you believe in a higher purpose and how that higher purpose helps you understand how you're supposed to respond today in your daily life. The lesson could also uh, get into the Who Am I story could be about what, what you were called to accomplish on this earth, how you came to understand your specific role. Um, And it might even be as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as a doctor, whatever your profession is, how you came to understand that role. Um, But the kids need to know that you didn't start this world just knowing you were going to do something. You had to figure it out, and it starts to set up this idea that there is power in looking for your calling in life. Also, you could have a great discussion about that. Talk to them about their passions. Talk to them about what they feel in their heart Deeply, that is uniquely theirs to bring to the world, um, and then share how you specifically discerned what you were supposed to do. Another conversation you can have is that life, uh, the life lessons you learn from loss. Right? We've all lost somebody dear to us, or we've lost a car that we loved so much and we had put so much time and energy into, or we lost, um, you know, a position or a toy or something. We've all had loss in our lives. And the conversation that we can have with our kids about loss is so in, is so valuable because it's not going away. We are all going to have loss in life. So let's normalize loss by simply saying, you know what, this is how I dealt with my loss. And you might be able to tell a story where a business partner hurt you or, uh, you know, a spouse did something um, and you ended up ending the marriage. Or, but talk about how loss hurt And um, how you made it through the hurt. Another story that you can tell is how to handle life's stresses. You might talk to your kids in this one where you talk about how you've learned to handle your emotions, where a lot of times you want to blow up and freak out and get mad and punch somebody, but how you chose not to. Or where you feel anxiety and stress. And how you've learned to manage your anxiety and stress. Again, this teaches that we we can learn that stress is normal. Wanting to punch somebody and get angry is normal. But you can then start to teach your kids specific situations where you learn to manage the anxiety and manage the stress. You can have a discussion about where they struggle with it and help them figure out how to turn off the fight or flight, right? how they can manage the emotion. Another great, I think, lesson and story we could talk to our kids about is the I can do hard things story. That's the story where you in your head honestly doubted maybe at first that you could accomplish something. You just couldn't see how it could be done. And it was overwhelming where you felt like there is no way I can do this. And then tell the story about how you overcame the hard thing. And how you piece by piece slowly went through the journey of doing the hard thing. Talk about how it feels to overcome such hard things. Again, notice how this conversation, all of these conversations are setting up the idea that life has some hard edges, but each and every one of them we can get through. We can get through loss. We can get through doing the hard thing. We can uh learn what our values and our principles are we can We can handle and figure out who we are, even in a world that seems so dark. When you guide your kid, your child, through these discussions um don't just do it when the moment appears. Uh, sometimes it might be great to start teaching some of these lessons. Along the way, uh, not just when all of a sudden they need those lessons. Does that make sense? They might. It might be better that you've already told similar stories three or four times. Then when they run into the problem, they'll actually remember the stories you've been telling. But this is what makes resilient kids are resilient conversations about where mom and dad had to be resilient, <laughs> Right. We, we always talk about we want our kids to be more resilient. But the reality is resilient kids are, are groomed and taught by resilient parents and resilient families. So let's make our family conversations part of this process and uh, know that the stories and the sharing of the stories are really what create the more positive, resilient symbols. Make sense basic uh, coaching 101 right there. We'll continue the journey. And uh, up next, we're going to continue a discussion we were having last hour and revisit an interview about uh, the impact of why some of our police officers out there in the world might be so stressed. It simply might be the pressures that their administration are putting on them. Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, it seems like nobody has it harder than a police officer in today's day and age. You've got to be ready for so many different things. You've got to be willing to risk your life and uh, really to have the scrutiny of the public and as well as as your bosses, your managers, the administration, city officials, is administration and all of this pressure that, that comes down from above, um, is it corrupting or burdening the justice system? Well, our guest, uh, John Shane, we're revisiting an interview we did with him. He's a professor at uh, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice And um, he's walking us through an article that he wrote for Marketplace.org titled The Cost of Stress in the Police Force. And I started the interview um, discussing the fact that the current political affairs that are going on in the country seem to have put cops in a position where they just can't win.
4: Yeah, look, there's a lot of good research dating back uh, into the 1940s and the 1950s that talk about difficulties of, of policing. And how police officers are, you know, street corner politicians, and the the sociology of police work that calls for the you know the wisdom of uh, Job and the uh, the strength of Samson yeah. and and may uses this biblical analogy that if, if a man had all these qualities, he might be a good police officer. And there there really is no other profession that is as fragmented. As police work, and if you think about the way it's been conceptualized, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-of-the-year catch-all agency. When all the other people go home, the people that take care of the trash and the people that take care of the animals and the people that take care of the homeless and the mentally ill, when they all go home at night at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the only people left are the police. Yeah. And they've got to know a little bit about everything, about how to corral an animal, how to handle a mentally ill person, uh, how to handle the homeless, all these things that really have nothing to do with fighting crime, but yet the public has tasked them with it, and they don't understand the consequences of the fragmentation that they have caused.
2: Mm. Oh, totally. What what do you think, um, as... You know, as a researcher, what do you think the impact of having everybody, you know, carrying a body camera? What what will that do? I mean, I guess in the downside, it just seems like, well, great, now more administration can, you know, micromanage. But in the good side, it's, you know, maybe every cop now has a backup.
4: Well, look, uh, I was on uh, an evaluation team in the North Police Department in the mid-1990s when we started the Pioneer dash-mounted cameras in the vehicles, right? That right. is now morphed into body cameras. Yeah. I, I could tell you from my early experiences that the dash cam video would save a police officer more often than it would hurt a police hmm. officer. And I think uh, as time wears on, we're going to see that with body cameras. Yeah. What we see right now are these sound bites and these snippets of police officers who are either making mistakes who are you know, really engaged in some sort of aberrant behavior. Right. What you don't see are the millions and millions and millions of interactions with citizens where police officers are helping them in some way or providing them with really, really good service. You're not going to see those. They're yeah. not going to make the nightly news. The shooting will, the bad shooting will, but the, the ordinary service call will not.
2: Yeah, so we, my, we do that. I uh, believe on this show we do we we always try to do a hero story and the easiest hero story to find honestly is either a firefighter or a police officer and those are stories that aren't always told but it's just where the cop just it's probably what's done every day all day long and and it seems like a big deal because we don't ever hear about it
4: well i you know i i, I should I should say, you're, it's not that you're never going to hear those stories. I should—I probably shouldn't use such firm language, but what I mean to say is that the media is generally not attracted to those sorts of stories. I, I mean, I praise you for yeah. the effort. Yes,
2: but yeah, they but don't. That's right. Mainstream
4: media, yeah, they're—they're not—they're not really talking about Mm-mm. those things. They consider that well, this is what the police are supposed to do. Yeah. Um. So let's not let's not waste our time talking about the things that they should do.
2: What what's the future? I you,
4: if I were out there today, I'd rather have a body camera than not have one.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would too. And I'd make sure it's on all the time. And I'd make sure I. I mean, you know, frame every picture because I. I want it. I want. But see, think of that now. I guess what it is now. It's 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 this trust but verify idea. Now it's really just verify. Trust we may give well, you or we no. may not, but
1: verify it.
4: That's a very good way to put it, yes, and everything is right away, let's go back to the body cam, let's go back to mm-hmm. the dash cam, and let's verify whether or not what was said was true, and, you know, those sorts of things have caught citizens in lies about the police officer, Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it hasn't it has snared a few cops that have done uh, the wrong thing, you know, purposely, or just, you know, made, made mistakes.
2: Which is good, right? And, and we, we want to stop the, the, that percent from making such serious mistakes. And also we don't want to stress out our cops. We've got about a minute left. What would you say, John, about what's, what could we just do? What should we be like looking for or pushing for from our political leaders maybe that might create a, a healthier, less stressful cop?
4: Well, I think that there's a, there are a number of things. First of all, recruiting, uh, recruiting a, a better quality police officer, and establishing mandatory minimum standards instead of relying on, you know, discretion and discretion or nepotism that have been right. so flagrant in policing for years. Uh, the second thing is providing police officers with the best training possible. There's a wide variety of training uh, all across the country. It's not consistent. A lot of the training does not meet national standards. And the third thing is getting the community and our political leaders to understand what police work is actually like. And you know, running them through what's called a citizen's police academy, where the police department uh, takes community leaders, clergy, members of the business community, runs them through what we call a citizen's police academy, uh, generally about 15 weeks, one a week, every night of the week for 15 weeks to explain to them, you know, the constitutional limitations of policing yeah, and what it's like to be confronted with someone with a gun and make a decision in a fraction of a second.
2: That was John Shane, again, professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, trying to help us understand the the cost of policing. Uh, and the stress that these police officers are undertaking again, they you know everyone's like, well, yeah, they they signed up for it, but think about their role, think about the position they've been placed in to um, or put themselves in to protect. And I, I was just speaking with one the other day it's it never ends and a lot of i mean they're not necessarily paid the most but right but you know where they make a lot of money is in overtime not to mention the stress of being having to make a lot of your money working overtime um sometimes dealing with the more difficult uh, aspects and the complex situations that go on so there are obviously some bad eggs, but there also are a lot of pretty amazing uh, people that are sitting in those cars all day and, again, show up and their their job isn't to just show up at a school where there's a shooting. They actually have to show up and walk in that school or run in that school. So let's be careful. Let's, let's also understand that the stresses are enormous. Uh, mistakes are being made, obviously, but... Also, a lot of amazing stuff being done every day. So you might want to take a second and thank a police officer that you see um, and also understand that certain uh, certain groups of people, certain cultures, certain uh, racial uh, and, and uh, ethnic backgrounds have not – don't feel like they can just feel safe. Um, notice that there's that disparity too and that's a reality in the world we live in. But I think every one of us could try to make it all a little better for uh, everybody involved in these situations. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the show to help you be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show.